Well, before we begin, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we will start with a brief word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can enter into your presence this morning, knowing that you have a blessing in store for us. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of the Sabbath school hour, but as we tarry just a little longer in your presence, we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and speak to our hearts. Thank you, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have your Bibles. Please turn with me to Genesis, the sixth chapter. Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 17. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 17. Those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you know that Genesis 6 and 7 is one of the greatest children's stories in the Bible, the story of the flood when God destroyed the earth with water. Our title this morning, Wicked World, Righteous Man. Wicked World, Righteous Man. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 17, the Bible says this, And behold, this is the Lord talking, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. As I read that passage, it kind of dawned on me that this it seems kind of contrary to the Bible's description of the character of God. The character of God, as you read it through the Scriptures, you know, God is in the business of saving people. He sent His Son to die upon the cross to redeem fallen man. And here we find a declaration by God that He would send a flood of water upon the earth to destroy those humans who had been created in the image of God, who only just a few hundred years before this, he walked in the cool of the garden. The man who he had created in his image, the crowning act of the creation week, and now the Lord, as he looks upon the earth, the Bible says that he would destroy it with water. Why such a harsh destruction or such a harsh sentence of destruction? Genesis 6, 1 and 2, the Bible answers this question. The Bible says this, and it came to pass when, the, uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, read, you can read in there, the Christians, saw the daughters of men, and you can read in there, the worldly people, that they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose. The term sons of God is a term that was used to describe the people of God or the descendants of Seth. The descendants of Seth. As you look at Genesis 4 and 5, you see the descendants of Seth and then also the descendants of Canaan. And here we find that the descendants of Seth or the Christians 
saw those who were the descendants of the Canaanites or the worldly people and took them to be wives. They're intermarriage or unequally yoked relationships. And it's interesting that as you read Genesis chapter 6, this is the only reason that God gives or that Moses gives for why God destroyed the earth with a flood. Now, of course, there are other reasons. There are many reasons that, 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 that God looked upon the earth and decided to destroy the earth. But this is the reason that God gives in Genesis 6 why he made the decision to destroy the earth with a flood. The intermarriage, the unequally yoked relationships that took place diluted the church of God until it became much like the world. The Bible says this in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only what? He looked upon the earth, the imaginations of men, the thoughts, the purposes, the desires were only evil on a continual basis. I, I, I don't fully understand that. How can the thoughts of men be constantly evil one after the other? No good thoughts, only wicked thoughts that came out of the mind of man. It was a terrible time of earth's history as God looked upon the earth. This was the result of unequally yoked relationships, and it stands as a warning to us today. But the Bible goes on in verses 11 and 12, and it tells us this. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his ways upon the earth. It's interesting to me that not only the thoughts of men were only evil continuously, but the Bible tells us that the thoughts became actions. As a man thinketh in his heart, the Bible tells us, so is he. If the thoughts of men were only evil continuously, then it stands to reason that the actions that man did were only evil continually. It was a terrible time in earth's history. There were wickedness abound. It was un checked, and God looked upon the earth, and the Bible says this, verse 6, and it repented God, that is to be sorry or to regret. It it repented God, or repented the Lord, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy men whom I have created from the face of the earth. Behold, man and beast and creeping thing and the fowl of the air For it repented him, it made him sorry that he had made them. Just a few hundred years. Went from the crowning act of creation, the joy of the creation week, where God walked and talked with men, to now God saying, it repented me. I'm sorry that I have made man. Wickedness, unchecked, abound before the time of the flood. Listen to this description, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 91. It says this, Neither the marriage relation nor the rights of property were respected. Whoever coveted the wives or the possessions of his neighbor took them by force, and men exulted in their deeds of violence. Not only were they violent, but they exulted in their deeds 
of violence. She goes on, they delighted in destroying the life of the animals and the use of flesh for food rendered them still more cruel and bloodthirsty until they came to regard human life with astonishing indifference. Terrible time in earth's history. God looked upon the earth and all he saw was wickedness that abounded. It got so bad that man even looked at other men's lives with indifference. If they saw something they wanted, they just took it. If they had a resistance, they killed the person and didn't even give it a second thought. Wickedness in the time before the flood. In Luke, the 17th chapter, you can jot this down. You're familiar with it, verse 26. The Bible tells us this. And as it was... In the days of Noah, we read Matthew's version of this in the scripture reading, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also when? In the days of the Son of Man. Simply put, Matthew and Luke are telling us this. If you want to know what the earth is going to be like before the uh, second coming, go back and read the story of the flood. The story of the flood and the reason why God destroyed the earth is an illustration of what it's going to be like before Christ comes back the second time. Wickedness abounding, wickedness unchecked, wickedness in the hearts of men uh, regarding one another with astonishing indifference. It is an illustration But here's the thing that I want to think about a little bit this morning. We could talk a lot about the parallels between the wickedness at the time of the flood and the wickedness today. There have been many sermons that have been preached on that. But I believe it stands to reason that if the wickedness in the time of the flood is an illustration of the wickedness at the second coming of Christ, that would mean that the righteousness of Noah would stand as an illustration or an example of the righteousness of God's people when Jesus comes back. Noah stands as an example of how God's people would live in the time of the most wickedness, the most wicked time in earth's history. And so this morning what I want to do, instead of looking at all the wickedness in the time of Noah and comparing that with the wickedness today, I think you can can go back and do that on your own. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a brief biography of the life of Noah because he is an illustration of how you and I will live in the wicked time of earth's history right before the second coming of Jesus. Noah means rest. His great-grandfather is somebody that you are familiar with, a man by the name of Enoch. You know that Enoch walked with God and was translated to heaven. Noah was the 10th descendant from Adam. He was the second father of the world, was he not? He lived for 950 years. That makes you tired just thinking about it, doesn't it? 950 years. Noah was alive. And here's the interesting thing. Noah was about 480 years old when God said, build an ark. It was right in the middle of his life, if you will, 
Right in the middle of his life, God said, Noah, I've got an important job that I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. You see, Noah didn't have a midlife crisis. Noah had a midlife calling. Amen? And God said, Noah, I've got an important job that I want you to do. I want you to build this ark. Halfway through his life, he was called to do something big for God. But notice what the, what the Bible says in verse 8 of Genesis 6. Genesis 8 and 9, and it's interesting, you will notice that this is coming in the stream of the Bible's description of the wickedness of the earth. It talks about how, you know, a repentant God that he had made man, the thoughts of man or the imaginations of men were only evil continuously. It's going through all of this description of of intermarriage and unequally yoked relationships, God looking upon the earth, all of this wickedness. And then it says this in verse 8. It says, but. But the Lord, or but Noah rather, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Would you say amen to that? The eyes of God were going to and fro over the earth. And he was looking at the wickedness of men. And as he was running to and fro, and as he was looking at the wickedness of the earth, he was stopped dead in his tracks. He saw Noah. It caught his attention. Let me tell you something this morning. Righteous people catch the attention of God. Amen? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Bible goes on and it says this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was just, which literally means righteous. He was a just man and, a, and perfect in his generations. And Noah, what did he do? Now, I want you to notice something here. It, this is an important thing to pick up. The description of Noah's character comes before God gave him the call to build the ark. You might miss that little detail reading through the story, but the description of Noah's character, that he was just, that he was perfect, that he walked with God, that comes before God says, Noah, I want you to build the ark. And that's an important thing for us to catch because it wasn't the crisis that created Noah's sterling character. That was just the way Noah lived his life. But I believe that it was the character of, of, of Noah that caught God's attention so much so that God laid upon his shoulders the awesome responsibility of building an ark. It wasn't the crisis that made the man. The man was made before the crisis came. And I believe that it was the character qualifications that are described here in Genesis chapter 6 that qualified Noah to enter into the new earth. Was it not a new earth after the flood? God had washed it clean with the water. He destroyed all of the wickedness. There was only Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark. It was a new start. And that character qualification that's described here gave him the qualities or the qualification to enter into that new earth. And I believe that it's the character of God's people that will qualify them to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. But again, I repeat, it wasn't the crisis that made the man. You see, we can't wait until the time gets tough. We got to start working on that ahead of time, amen? We can't wait until things get bad to start making a, a relationship with God work. It's something we need to work on now. 
So let's quickly look at these things here, the description of Noah's character. The Bible says he was a just man. In fact, if you read in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I had seen what? Righteous before me in this generation. The word just literally means that he was a righteous man. He was one of moral integrity who feared God rather than men. He fearlessly stood for the right, although the vast majority of the world was compromising all around him. Noah was a just or righteous man. Listen to this description. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 92, says this. Amid the prevailing corruption, Methuselah, Noah, and Noah, and many others labored to keep alive the knowledge of the true God, and to stay the tie of moral evil. Let me ask you a question. How difficult do you think that job was? You think that was easy going? To keep alive the knowledge of God in one of the most wicked times in earth's history, in a time in earth's history where God looks down and he says, man, I wish I hadn't created man except for that man right there. The Bible says they labored, or the spirit of prophecy says they labored, they worked to keep alive the knowledge of God. You know, sometimes we think that work for the Lord is meant to be easy. But it's not, right? Laboring for the Lord, is it's, it's tough. It's a tough work, but it's a rewarding work in the end. Bible tells us, or spirit of prophecy tells us they labored to keep alive a knowledge of the true God, and stay the tie of moral evil. He was a just man. He was a righteous man. But the Bible also says that he was a perfect man. The word perfect in the Hebrew simply means whole or complete. We understand that there has been no perfect being like God. Noah did not live a life where he never sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he was perfect in the sense that he was whole and complete in his relationship and walked with the Lord. He was completely surrendered to the will of God. Whatever God's will was for Noah, Noah did what God called him to do. He was perfect. He was perfectly surrendered to the will and the wishes of God. But what I really want to talk about for a few minutes here this morning is the last thing that's described here in verse 9, and that is that Noah walked with God. When you think about walking with God, what's the, who's the first person that comes into your mind? Enoch, right? First person that comes into your mind is Enoch, that Enoch walked with God and God took him. He was translated to heaven because of his walk with the Lord. And I can imagine in my mind's eye that Noah, although he never saw Enoch, there was about 70 years between the time that Enoch lived or when Enoch was translated to the time when Noah was born. So there was a 70-year gap between these two uh, righteous men. So they never met one another. But I can imagine in my mind's eye that Enoch's son, which was Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, probably spent some time teaching the children and grandchildren about Enoch. How many of you would like to have gotten in on that conversation? Uh, You know, I wish the Bible had told us a little bit more, but but we'll we'll be happy with what we got. But I, I can imagine in my mind's eye that Methuselah 
taught Noah and the other children and the other grandchildren about this great man, his father, Enoch, and how he walked with the Lord and how he was a righteous man. And the example, he probably broke down exactly how it was that Enoch walked with the Lord and taught these spiritual principles to these young people. And it made such an impression in the mind of Noah that he said, that's what I want. That's what I want. And those of us that are a little advanced in age, we would do well to take this as an example, that we would do well to leave the young people an example that is worth following. Something that they can look at and say, that's what I want. I want to live like great-great-grandfather, or I want to live like dad, or I want to live like whoever. We should do well to leave the young people an example that is worth following. It made such an impact in the life of Noah that it changed him into this righteous man. But as I thought about it, here you got two guys. You got Enoch, you have Noah. Both of them walked with God. One was taken to heaven. The other had to live through the flood. Did Noah get the short end of the stick or what? You know, both of them walked with the Lord. I mean, the simple description there, the Bible says they walked with God. One was translated, the other had to live through the flood. Seems like Noah got the short end of the deal, didn't it? But the more I thought about this, the more I kind of chewed it over in my mind. Of course, we know God is a just God and he's not unfair. But the more I thought about it, the more I came to the realization that Enoch and Noah are illustrations of God's people in the last days. Those who are like Enoch will be the ones that the Lord chooses to lay to rest before the great and awful day of this world comes. Before the time of earth's destruction and the time of trouble, there will be those that God lays to rest and he will resurrect them at the second coming and they will be translated into the kingdom of heaven. They will not go through that time of trouble that the Bible talks about. But then there will be the Noahs who will also be people who walk with God and they will walk with him in the midst of the most wicked time in earth's history and they will stay true and faithful to God. No, Noah didn't get the short end of the deal. Noah was used by God to be a great example of how we ought to live our lives in the last days. Amen? Listen to this. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 96, it says this, Noah stood like a rock amid the tempest. Surrounded by popular contempt and ridicule, he distinguished himself by holy integrity and unwavering faithfulness. How did he distinguish himself? Was he just known as a religious nut? No, he was known as one who had holy integrity and unwavering faithfulness to God and his word. That's what distinguished Noah in the last days or in his time. She goes on, a power, a power attended his words for it was the voice of God to man through his servant. Connection with God made him, that is Noah, strong in the strength of infinite power. What made him strong? The connection with God made him strong in the strength of infinite power. That's what 
enabled Noah to stand like a rock in the midst of this tempest of wickedness in earth's history. As I look at all of this, what I find is that the foundation of Genesis uh, 6 and verse 8 and 9, the foundation of that is that Noah walked with God. Listen, Noah could not be a just man. Noah could not be a perfect man unless he first walked with the Lord. It all centers around that, that daily walking with the Lord, that consistent chipping away at developing that walk and relationship with God made him the tower of strength that could stand against the tempest of wickedness in the world. And it's no different for us today. The only way that we will have that description as Noah was described for us is if we walk with the Lord. Oh, let me walk with thee, my God, as Enoch walked in days of old. That is what's going to make us into the people that have fortitude to stand when the earth is so violently wicked. But the Bible goes on. It tells us some other things about Noah. Not only was he a just man, not only was he a, uh, uh, a perfect man and a uh, man who walked with God, but the Bible goes on and says this. In Genesis 6.22, Genesis 6.22, it says this. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, what are the last three words there? So did he. He was a man of obedience. Genesis 7 and verse 5 follows up on that. It says, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. How much did Noah do? He didn't pick and choose. The Bible wasn't a smorgasbord for him. The word of God was not something that he just said, well, I'll take this and I'll leave that. Anything that God asked Noah to do, he did it. He was obedient to God in every detail of his life even if it meant building an ark in the middle of nowhere. I can imagine when Noah laid the keel of the ark in the middle of this big field where there's no water by. I mean, once you lay the keel, you get a rough idea of how big that boat's going to be. He lays that keel down in the middle of the field. There's no water. There's probably not even a stream nearby. And even if there was, it wouldn't have done any difference. Lays that keel down. And people say, what in the world is this guy doing? He was obedient to God. He did what God asked him to do. Oh, Noah is losing his mind. He is having a midlife crisis. He's wanting to do something big and splashy that will uh, leave in the minds of people a remembrance of this man. Mm -mm. He wasn't after his own ambitious gain. He was obeying God. Even if it went against the science of the time, he was obedient to God. Noah was a just man. Noah was a perfect man. Noah was a man who walked with God. Noah was a man of of strict adherence to the word of God. He obeyed all the commandments of the Lord. But go with me to 2 Peter chapter chapter 2 and verse 5. We're going to lay another layer here. As we look at this biography of a man of God, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says this, verse 
Bible says, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, that is referring to his family, eight people who were saved, a preacher of what? Righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. What kind of preacher was he? Was he a righteous man? Bible says he was a righteous man, so it would stand to reason that the message that he preaches would be a message of righteousness. For 120 years, Noah preached the same message over and over and over and over again. Get into the ark and be saved. Get into the ark and be saved. There's a flood coming. Get into the ark and be saved. The world is going to be destroyed. If you want to live, get into the ark. And for 120 years, he preached the same message over and over and over and over again. And the reason why he did that is because that was the message of present truth. Right? That was the present truth that the antediluvian world needed to know. If they wanted to be saved, get into the ark of safety. There may be a temptation from time to time to get a little tired of the old way marks that God has given to us in terms of the message for the time that we are living in. But we as Noah want to be preachers of righteousness. And although we may sound like a broken record that is repeating itself over and over again, we need to keep preaching the same message because it is the message of present truth. It is the message that the world needs. Noah did not go around exploring all kinds of other theological things. He preached the message that was relevant to the time that he was living in, and there is no other relevant message for the time that we are living in than the three angels' message of Revelation chapter 14. It's the only relevant message. And of course, there's a lot encapsulated in that message. That's the message that the world, we're, we're told, needs to hear, he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. Now, you know I'm an evangelist at heart from my time doing evangelism. So as I look at this story, the first thing that kind of, kind of jumps out at me, well, maybe not the first thing, but one thing that jumps out at me is in terms of numerical value, how successful of an evangelist was Noah? You might argue that he saved the most important people, right? His family. If we can get to heaven with our family, praise the Lord. Our children, our spouses, that would be a blessing from God to be able to spend eternity with our family in the kingdom of heaven. But in terms of numerical value, if, if we were to do a statistical report on, on Noah's effectiveness as an evangelist, we would look at the statistics. How many people did he preach to? He preached to way more people than I'll ever preach to in my lifetime. 120 years he was preaching. Thousands, tens upon thousands, probably billions of people heard the message of Noah, get into the ark and be saved. Only eight people were in that ark. Statistically, Noah was a flop as an evangelist. But you know what? 
He was obedient to what God told him to do. And that's what matters. The results are not so important. What God is looking for are people who are faithful to their marching orders. And the marching orders that God has given to us is to go. And he says, go and do what I've asked you to do. Preach this message. Proclaim it with a loud voice to all parts of the world. Leave the results with me. Listen, if Noah wasn't that successful in his time, if the message was not accepted in the time of Noah, and the time of Noah is an illustration of end time events, we shouldn't be surprised when we do prophecy seminars and and do Bible studies, and the vast majority of people reject it. It shouldn't surprise us. But for some reason, we get to the end of prophecy seminars, and it's almost like it catches us by surprise that the vast majority of people have rejected the message. Of course, we want to do everything we can to make the message palatable, right? We want to do everything we can to make it as easy as possible for people to embrace the present truth. But the reality is we are living in the time of Noah. We are living in a wicked time of earth's history. And just like the message was rejected in the time of Noah and in the time of Christ, it should not surprise us when the same takes place when we work for the Lord. But the question is, am I going to become weary in well-doing? Or am I going to be persistent in doing what the Lord has called me to do? Executing my marching orders to go and warn the world. You are a Noah that God has called. Noah's message of righteousness was an uncomfortable message. It was a message that polarized the world into two groups, did it not? Those within and those without. It polarized the entire world into one of two groups. The message that God has given to the Seventh-day Adventist church is a polarizing message. It will divide the world into one of two groups. And by God's grace, you and I will be the group that chooses to be inside the ark with God. Because, you know, it's interesting. God actually invited Noah to come in to the ark, which means that God was where? When I invite somebody to come into my house, am I standing outside of it? God invited him. He said, come into the ark. He was already there. I want to be where God is. It was a polarizing message. We shouldn't water our message down because it's so polarizing, but we should preach it as it is in the word of God. One final passage, and then we'll wrap this thing up as we're looking at a biography of the life of Noah Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, this is our last Bible passage. Hebrews eleven seven. Noah was a just man. Noah was a perfect man. Noah was a man who walked with God. Noah was a man of obedience. Noah was a man who preached a message of righteousness. And here's the last thing. Genesis, or, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible says this, by faith, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, what did he do? What did he do? He prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. He was a man of great faith. But the point that I want to make in that Bible passage is this. The Bible says he prepared an ark. Listen, 
Noah did not just preach a message, but he lived the message. He didn't just have a theoretical experience, but he was out there pounding wooden stakes into the boat. He was out there squaring the logs. He was out there laying the keel. He was out there working as he was preaching. He was preaching with his hands. He was preaching with the actions in his life. He was preaching with his mouth. Every part of the life of Noah was preaching the message. Get into the ark. The earth is going to be destroyed. He was a man of action, not just a man who talked, but he was a man who lived what he believed. Listen to this. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95. I love this. She says this. He gave Noah, he gave the world an example of believing just what God said. If you wanted to know how God wanted you know, somebody to live in the time of Noah, you, all you had to do was look at Noah. That's how God wants us to live. He was a living example of how God wants us to live or wanted them to live their lives. And I ask you the question this morning, if somebody looks at you, will they see an example of how one ought to live their life of, uh, of those who are living in the end of earth history? God is looking for Noahs that can be an example, not just with their words, but with their actions, with the way they live their lives, by the things that they find valuable. If somebody were to look at your checkbook, what would they find that you place a high value upon? If somebody were to look at your bank statement, what would they find in there that tells them what you place a high value upon? If somebody were to look over your shoulder as you went through your week, would they find that you are an example of how God wants us to live our lives? But she goes on and she says this. He gave the world an example of believing just what God says. Not only believing, but applying. And she goes on. She says, all that he possessed. How much that he possessed? All that he possessed, he invested in the ark. How much? All that Noah possessed, he invested in the building of the ark. When the flood came, none of Noah's possessions were destroyed in the flood. Because all that he possessed, he invested in the building of an ark. Noah did not have a house that was destroyed by the flood because he no longer owned that house. Noah did not have property that was damaged by the flood because he no longer owned that property. Noah did not have money in the bank that was destroyed by the flood because Noah didn't have a bank account. Noah did not have any stuff that was destroyed in the flood because we're told all that he possessed, he invested in the ark. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, listen to me carefully this morning. I'm not suggesting that you need to go home tomorrow and book a realtor to come and evaluate your house and put it on the market. I'm not, I'm not telling you to do that. Neither am I telling you to go home tomorrow and empty your bank account, and put it in an offering envelope, and give it to church, although Jim would be happy to accept that. 
We would put it to good use. I'm not suggesting that you need to have a yard sale and sell everything that you have and live on the street. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting this morning is this. There will come a time when God asks you to do that. There will come a time when God asks you to invest all that you have in the building up of his kingdom. You know, I can imagine in my mind's eye that for 118 years, Noah lived in his house. Well, he was preaching the message, get into the ark, get into the ark, get into the ark. For 119 years, perhaps he had a bank account. But when it came to 120 years, he was offloading all that he had. He was selling it. He was giving it away. He was investing all of that money into the building of the ark. And everybody thought he was an absolute nutcase. How are you going to take care of your family if you don't have a house? How are you going to take care of your family if you don't have money in the bank? How are you going to take care of your family if you don't have food to put on a table? How, you are an irresponsible person to sell all that you have and put it into an ark that's never going to even see a drop of water on it. How could you do such a thing, Noah? You are not a man of God because men of God take care of their families. See it? But Noah was sold out to God, and he obeyed God no matter what other people he invested all in the building of the ark. There's going to come a time where the Lord is going to knock on the hearts of Seventh-day Adventists, and he's going to say, listen, my coming is so soon, I need some means. You see, the problem is never money. Money is not a problem for God. The problem is that the money is in our pockets. And we're not as judicious with it as maybe we should be sometimes. God is going to come one day, and he's going to knock on our heart, and he's going to say, listen, there is a need in my church for the building up of my kingdom, and the question is, when that door is knocked on, are you going to be a Noah, or are you going to be a Mrs. Lot? That's the question. It would be a shame when Christ comes that we have possessions that are destroyed when Jesus comes in the clouds of you know, we're told in inspiration that there will be those who throw money at the church in the last days. And the church will say, there's nothing I can do with it. If you had given it to us before now, we might have been able to put it to good use. But now, there's nothing we can do. And they will weep and they will wail because they wished that they could do something. But now it is too late. When God comes and says, now's the time, to make the investment, and to depend upon me to literally supply all of your needs. The invitation is just before you to come into my Father's house. Are you going to be willing at that time to say, Father, here it is. I don't have much, but I give it to you anyway. I don't know when that time is going to come, but I do know it is going to come. And when it comes, I want to be like Noah. How about you? Noah was a just man. Noah was a perfect man. Noah was a man who walked with God. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was an obedient man of God. He was a man of action who put his money where his mouth was. And so my appeal to you this morning is this. We live on the cusp of 
the most wicked time in earth's history. You, you think it's bad now. It's only going to get worse. We know that from Bible prophecy. And the Lord may so choose to allow you to live during that time. And if he does, would you like to say with me this morning, Father, help me to live like that righteous man did over 6,000 years ago. Help me to stand firm in the tempest of wickedness in the last days. Help me to be the preacher of righteousness who is doing everything he can to turn the thoughts and minds of people to the cause of God. Help me to be that man or that woman or that son or that daughter, the child of God who is turning the world in the direction of God and giving the invitation to come. I want to be that person. How about you? Amen? Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Lord, help me to be that man, that woman, that young person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the story of Noah, this righteous man of God who lived so many thousand years ago. He was a man of much taller stature. He was a man that was very smart and intellectual much smarter than we are today. Yet, he was fully dependent upon you. And Father, I pray that we would take this as an example, that we would not depend upon our own flesh, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, but that we would depend upon you. Each morning, Father, may we follow the example of Noah, May we follow the example of Enoch and walk with you in the cool of the morning and say, what's the good word for me today, dear Lord? How would thou have me live my life? Father, we need your help. We cannot do it on our own. And so we plead for the aid of the Holy Spirit as we seek to live godly lives Thank you, Father. Bless us to this end, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.